Well, uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome uh, to this uh, public lecture. My name is uh, Gareth Jones from the Department of Geography, and will chair the lecture, which is jointly sponsored by LSE Cities and the Department of Geography and the Environment. Um, I should alert you at this early stage uh, to the Twitter hashtag, which hopefully uh, you can see down in the bottom right for the multimedia savvy uh, amongst you can apparently talk, chat and in interrogate uh, the conversation uh, while it is taking place. It's uh, my very great pleasure to introduce uh, this evening's speaker, David Harvey, uh, distinguished professor at City University of New York uh, and a good friend uh, of the LSE. I think every uh, serious student of politi political economy in the city should be familiar uh, with David's work. His website, um, which I recommend, davidharvey.org, modestly notes that he is the author of numerous books. By my count, numerous in this context means about 20, most of which are available in addition to English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, German, Korean, Norwegian, Chinese, Turkish, Japanese, Romanian, and the list goes on. The books themselves, perhaps more importantly um, than their various uh, uh, linguistic forms of articulation, um, are benchmarks um, in our scholarship uh, of the city and include social justice in the city, the limits of capital to capital, the urbanization of capital, the condition of postmodernity, justice, nature, and the geography of difference, Paris, capital of modernity, I'm not going to go to 20, the new imperialism, the enigma of capital. Through writing, lectures, and activism, David introdu has introduced a rigorous understanding of Marxist theory in our analysis of the city, ever aware of the connections between the economy, politics, and social life. How the city is represented, his writings, for example, uh, around Balzac, how capitalist production shapes the urban experience, for which I think uh, David Simon's The Wire um, is almost a coda uh, of what uh, David was writing in the urbanization of capital about Baltimore in the mid-1980s, and how political action can also shape the city. Contrary to our beloved Chancellor George Osborne's claim that we're all in this together, and as Frederick Engels realized immediately on seeing the city of Manchester in the 1840s, David's work suggests that the city under capitalism reproduces social inequality, but also serves as a furnace for class struggle. Tonight's lecture is entitled Rebel Cities, the Urbanization of Class Struggle. Thank you. One of, the, one of the things that uh, is always intriguing me is uh, how to get from Marx's abstractions to what's going on in the wire or that world. And um, 
Over this last year, I actually haven't been working on urbanization. I've been living on the land down in Argentina, and the only thing I did uh, down there was uh, to actually try to write up uh, Companion Volume to Marx's Capital Volume 2, uh, the lectures of which are now going on on the web. And I thought I'd start with uh, a little argument that Marx makes in the middle of that rather surprising volume, which is not read very much. Uh, he sets up a, a very highly simplified model of what a capitalist mode of production might look like. It has two classes, capitalists and workers. And the question is how do they interrelate in terms of the nature of the commodity exchanges they engage in? Uh, and in particular, how are supply and demand articulated in that model? And Marx points out that the total demand in the system at the beginning of the day is whatever the capitalist spends on labor power, i.e. the wage bill, plus whatever they spend on buying means of production, plus whatever it is the capitalists themselves consume. At the end of the day, you end up with a supply which is equivalent to the total amount of the wage bill and equivalent to the total value of the means of production, uh, plus capitalist consumption. And there's no room for profit in that. So the big question is where's the extra demand come from at the end of the day that can absorb the surplus value that's produced? And then Marx asks the question, can the workers supply it? The answer is obviously no, because they're not in a position to supply it. The only class that can supply it is the capitalist class. Now this produces a very peculiar economy in which the capitalist class has to supply the extra demand to absorb the extra surplus value that is organized and produced. It's a very strange economic world. Until you ask the question, what kind of consumption are the capitalists engaging in? And of course there are two kinds according to Marx. There's personal consumption and there's also what he calls productive consumption which is the investment in new activity. And it is the investment in new activity which absorbs the output of the day before. And so Marx is fairly satisfied with that answer. Except that there's a time problem and volume two of Capital is all about timing and is all about temporality and the problems that arise out of temporality. And it turns out the only way you can square that circle of, of putting demand and supply in equilibrium in that two-class model is for the capitalist to engage in the following practice, which has a long history, which is to buy now and pay later. That is, they use credit. The only way you can square it is through credit. And actually, volume two is perpetually excluding the credit system from its analysis at the same time as you find a rationale right throughout volume two as to why the credit system is absolutely fundamental to how capitalism works. It's not something ancillary or after the fact, it's actually foundational 
to how the system can work. And out of this there comes a very simple proposition which you do get a little bit mentioned when you get to volume three of Capital, which says that actually the accumulation of wealth under capitalism has to be paralleled by an accumulation of debt. That there is a relationship between the two, a, fu a fundamental relationship. Now there's been a lot of work done on the history of accumulation of, of wealth. It's very hard actually to get data on debts because, you know, if I lend you 50 quid and, you know, where does it register? It's, it's, you know, it's very hard to find it. But you can see some areas of indebtedness, for instance, the national debt. You can get data on mortgage debt on housing and things like that. And what you do indeed see is a parallel growth in indebtedness to the growth of wealth. Now, this led me to write a little piece which I then sent to the Wall Street Journal, which of course they never published, <laughs> which pointed out that if the Republicans were very serious and they actually got rid of debt, they would actually destroy capitalism and therefore the Republicans would do a better job of destroying capitalism than the working class had ever done. <laughs> and I think it's true, actually, really is true. Of course, the Republicans aren't really serious about destroying debt. They're just serious about destroying what remains of working class power and low income power and all the rest of it. Now, that connectedness between debt creation and wealth accumulation plays a very important role in the whole history of urbanization. Now, the history of urbanization is, of course, about the history of indebtedness and, and, and credits, uh, which is used particularly to create long-term investments and uh, fixed capital in the built environment and all the rest of it. So there is then a very vital way in which the historical dynamics of a capitalist mode of production are very much connected to the way in which credit institutions and wealth creation is focused on city building and urbanization. And that's one of the big themes that I tried to explore in one of the essays in the last book on rebel cities. And when you look at this, you see actually some very, very powerful connections. There's a wonderful phrase which came out of San Francisco, uh, Federal Reserve Bank, uh, looking at the recent things and it said actually look backwards and it said oh my god you can see how the US has historically got out of crises it's always got out of them by building houses and filling them with things now in the book I had a little graph of, of housing construction just to illustrate this before 1945 Rarely was housing construction more than a million units a year. Most of the time it was around 500,000 units a year. It oscillated a great deal up and down, strong building cycles. After 1945, the building cycles are slightly ironed out. They're still fairly, fairly strong, and there are certain periods when it became very strong. But the aggregate was no longer less than a million dollars, less than a million houses a year. It was somewhere between one and two million a year. The top was two million a year, and most times it was above 1.5 million a year. And you see from 1945 onwards, 
the United States was constructing somewhere between around 1.5, 1.7 million new housing units per year, every year, until 2007. 2007 it went down and now it's back at 600,000, i.e. where it was in the 1930s. In other words, the United States, and I think the Federal Reserve Bank's right to say, which has historically got out of crises by building houses and filling them with things, can no longer do that. It's lost that possibility. And one of the big drags on the US economy, everybody will acknowledge, is the housing market and the difficulties in the housing market and unemployment in the construction sector and new housing starts are not going where they were before and all this kind of thing. Now this of course is connected to something else which is in, all along been one of my major theses that the stability of the United States economy, the macroeconomic stability of the of the US economy has very much depended upon the dynamics of suburbanization because that's where most of the housing construction is occurring, that's where most of the surplus capital is being absorbed, that's where most of the debt is being created. But when you look at the process by which that debt is created you see something very interesting and again it comes back to the question of what is the relationship between the demand and the supply. How does a developer actually create new housing? they go to a financier and say, lend us money to build new houses. So the financier says, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So the developer gets lots of money to build tract housing around San Diego. Great. Then what happens? The tract housing has to be sold. If the developers are not going to go bankrupt and if the loan is not going to go south, it has to be sold. So the market has to be created. Who creates the market? It turns out the same financiers in many instances actually lend to people to buy. So in fact you get the financial institutions operating both in terms of regulating the supply and the demand. A neat circle. Now you can see how a housing bubble will form out of that very easily and we've seen signs of housing bubbles in the 1970s and we saw them again in the 1980s and then the big one comes 2001 onwards in which a vast amount of money is being lent to developers to build and a vast amount of money is being lent to people to buy. But as we know there was wage repression which afflicted the United States after Reagan came to power and, and we had Reaganism and all the rest of it and so the big problem was were the people who were buying them really creditworthy? Well initially in the 1970s, 1980s they were creditworthy but bit by bit you have to go further and further down until in the end you end up with the subprime world subprime lending. But the financial institutions are faced with a dilemma. If they don't lend subprime then the developers are going to go bankrupt so then there's an interesting class kind of question. What would a financial institution prefer to do? See the developers go bankrupt or see individual homeowners go bankrupt and foreclose on the homes? Well their class camaraderie would say well you know, my mate the developer etc etc we can't possibly let them go under you know so well all those people out there particularly if they're an ethnic minority or this kind of stuff so here we get something which is which is happening in this in this in this dynamic in this kind of way so that very simple model which Marx sets up I think in volume two actually helps explain where that's coming from and why that is an inevitable part of a capitalist dynamic unless there are 
policies devised by the state to prevent it happening. In other words, it's not because the state is lax that these things happen, it's because the state is not intervening uh, and recognizing the nature of the threat and cannot use its power to somehow or other prevent the development of these housing bubbles. And in fact, all of the evidence from 2000 onwards was the state powers being used to, to augment those, those bubbles. Now, if you go even further and start to look at the relationship between macroeconomic development and urbanization, you see some very, very, very strong relationships. First off, you will notice that a whole set of crises have occurred at various, in various countries, in various places, in various times, which are, which are actually founded on the land and property markets. The Japanese boom came to an end in 1990 with the crash of the land market. The Swedish banks had to be nationalized in 1992 uh, because of excessive property uh, exposure. And in 1973, there was a crash of the real estate investment trusts. And of course, New York City then went sort of uh, technically bankrupt in 1975. So we have all of those, all of those incidents, in, our, in other words, which had major influences upon macroeconomy. But the thing that I find very interesting is when I went to the literature and did a big search on what's the relationship between, say, housing markets and macroeconomic instability, and the answer was I couldn't find anything. It wasn't there. There's some articles coming out now, but you know, a couple of years ago there was hardly anything. And the closest you got was a World Bank report that actually said, you know, secondary mortgage markets are great. That is the way you could go, and, 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 that's that, and, and that shows the maturity of an economy when you've got set secondary mortgage markets of great depth and, and sophistication. So it was actually after the crash had occurred of Lehman Brothers, they were actually advertising, you know, doing exactly what Lehman Brothers had done. Uh, as, as. So in, in conventional economics then, there is a tremendous problem about not integrating an understanding of the dynamics of urbanization with the dynamics uh, of the overall economic trends. And what we see right now is, of course, a moving around of the crisis. Uh, Spain is in difficulty because, they had, because the banks got into difficulty through their property market lending. The same happened to Ireland. So it wasn't that the state was profligate in Spain, it was that the, the housing market was profligate and therefore they had to cover that. So again, what we're seeing are these relationships very clearly exposed and therefore we need to, to, to look at them. And when you look at them, of course, what you then see is a tremendous uh, exercise of class power over the strategies of urbanization. And the exercise of class power over strategies of urbanization are very much about keeping the macroeconomy alive. I mean, Alan Greenspan kept the interest rate low in order to prop up the housing market, which kept the US economy bubbling along in 2001, 2002, up until 2007. It was a macroeconomic policy that was built around doing exactly, exactly that. Which means, in effect, that capital has to control urbanization, that therefore the whole history of urbanization is very much taken up with the macroeconomic stability of 
coordinating demand and supply in a, in, in, a, in a dynamic economy in the kinds of ways which involve things like suburbanization. Now, the interesting thing about this, of course, is that suburbanization is not so simply an economic project. It's also a social and political project. Uh, one of the essays I've always liked very, very much was the uh, essay by uh, Zimmel on the metropolis and mental life, where he talks about, the, you know, what kind of mental stance do you have to have in order to be able to live in a, in, in a buzzing, busy metropolis? You have to have a blasé attitude, you have to be instrumental in your relationships with others, etc., etc., etc. In other words, a whole set of mental attitudes are required, a psychology, if you like, in order to cope with urban living. I think the same thing about suburbanization. There are two things to be said about it. One is that it's debt-financed and it's individually debt-financed and in the United States it's heavily, developed, heavily financed by home ownership. And as was said back in the 1930s, debt-encumbered homeowners don't go on strike. So there is a fantastic measure of social control which is involved in this whole kind of development of mortgage markets. When were the mortgage markets developed? That was done during the Roosevelt era. That's when, that's when you could finally get the 30-year mortgage, which was in 1937, and that's when Fannie Mae and some other FHAs were all set up in the big housing reform in the United States, which uh, gave access to home ownership, which was then supplemented after 1945 by a GI Bill of Rights, which also gave access to home ownership. So home ownership was seen as something which gave economic stability and brought many workers who became homeowners very much on the side of private property and capitalism. In other words, this is, a, this is an institutional kind of shift which is drawing more and more support. But it also creates certain kind of mental attitudes. Hardly, it's hardly surprising that actually the mental attitudes of most you know, traditional suburbanites of the suburbs are changing very rapidly right now for, for a variety of reasons. Traditional suburbanites uh, typically would vote kind of Republican or at least right-wing Democrat, and that would be it. Hardly the sort of ferment of, ferment of uh, radical kind of politics in, 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 in suburban uh, America. So that there's a project there which is about class stability, about continuing a process of accumulation which is occurring through the urban process, including, of course, the proliferation of debts, the harnessing of that debt to individuals in such a way that they have very hard, little room for maneuver and, and a whole politics that then, that then goes with that. So one of the things I would try to do is to look more closely at the relationship between capital and urbanization and unpack it in such a way that we can see why it is that we end up with, in, in New York City, for example, a billionaire mayor who's in cahoots with you know, financiers and developers and has this incredible kind of program which is described as building like Robert Moses with Jane Jacobs in mind, which you, know, you can see what that's, what that's about. Uh, who's, who's fantastic at liberating spaces for condominium developments and, and, and all sorts of other things. There are more mega projects going on under Bloomberg than ever went on under Moses in, in New York City. At the same time as the city itself is becoming increasingly class divided. 
And as the city becomes increasingly class divided, so somehow or other all of these projects, which from the mayor's window look great and you can be very proud of them and, and say, look, we're rebuilding New York, it's becoming this fantastic kind of place once more. It's not like it was in the 1970s and 1980s where everything's falling apart and you know nobody's taking any notice of the city anymore and it's riddled with crime, it's, it's, it's a great place to be. Well, Manhattan might be a great place to be, but just look at the rest of it. And if you go look at some data, here's the current situation. New York, in New York City, the top 1%, the famous 1% earn on average, on average, according to income tax data, $3.7 million a year individually. Okay? $3.7 million a year. There are something like 34,000 families or 100,000 people in New York City who are trying to live on $10,000 a year. Half the population of New York City is living on less than $30,000 a year. Well, anybody who knows New York City, you think of trying to live there on $30,000 a year. That's what students try to do, and it's not, it's not easy. But if you've if you got, you got a family, and, and all of those other responsibilities that go with that, it's just, that's, that, that's real hell. That's the level of inequality that exists. That's what separates the 1% from everybody else. And 1% is basically building New York in the way that it cares. Now, if you ask the question, well, where, where are all of those people living on less than $30,000 a year? Well, okay, some are still in Manhattan because there's still rent-stabilized apartments and things of that sort around, but they're steadily diminishing. If you want to see them, you should do what I did the other day, which is to come into Kennedy Airport at 6 o'clock in the morning and get on the E-train, coming in from way out in the suburbs, out in Jamaica. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, the E-train is packed. It's absolutely packed, mainly with women, predominantly women, predominantly women of color, all looking exhausted, grabbing a little bit of sleep, if they possibly can, going into the city to wake the city up, those are the people who are earning less than $30,000 a year, and they're living way, way out there. And as Engels said, most famously about Manchester, the bourgeoisie has these wonderful ways of building cities so that you can actually live in them without noticing what's happening to everybody else. You don't find the suits on the E-train at 6 o'clock in the morning, unless they're crazy like me and they're coming in at 6 o'clock in the morning. And anyway, if they are coming in at 6 o'clock in the morning, they certainly don't take the E-train. They have the limo pick them up and take them home or whatever, you know. So, no. So this, is a, so this is the way in which New York is structured. Now, I'm sometimes asked about, well, why are, you, why are you interested in things like the right to the city and why are you talking about urban revolution and, and the like? My argument here is, well, the right to the city is an empty signifier. The big question is who gets to fill it with meaning? And who gets to fill it with meaning right now are the condominium developers and Bloomberg and, and, and all of that lot. They have meetings every now and again about the future of New York City. And when people, when Picture the Homeless turned up to one of these meetings and said, look, we would like to come in and, and, and sit down with you all and talk about the future of the city, Bloomberg simply said to them, well, you're very lucky coming in here that this is a democratic country. At least you can come in here and say that and not get arrested. 
And so he said, so well, I, I, I would like to ask you to leave and, and, and maybe, you know, maybe sometime I'll have a meeting with Picture the Homeless about, you know, your, your concerns. So they went outside and they hung around in the laboratory, in, 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 in the, just outside in the foyer of the, of the hotel where this is all going on, and they promptly all got arrested. They don't have the right to the city. The folk on the E-train don't have the right to the city. So the big problem, it seems to me, is to then start to mobilize around gaining the right to the city for that tranche of the population, that group in the population. How do you do that? But then you come across a, a kind of interesting theoretical problem. Because the left often says, well, you know, that's not really the proletariat. I mean, the proletariat is supposed to be in factories, and, and it's the factory worker and all the rest of it. And yes, there's a sad situation right now because the proletariat has disappeared. It's gone to China, places like that. So, you know, there's not much we can do here because we don't have a proletariat anymore. Well, I do argue with that. And I think there's a relationship between the proletarian configuration that exists in cities and the quest for the right to the city and arguments of that sort. I was asked at some point by a labor union organizer, how do you organize a whole city? I thought it was a very interesting question. I said, I have the faintest idea how you organize a whole city. He said, well, you know, you're supposed to be an expert on these things. Why don't you sit down and think about it, you know? <laughs> so I said, all right, I'd try and think about it. And I had some discussions with people. And, and he said, he was, came from the union movement, and he says, well, um, you know, one of the things I've been struggling with in the, in, in the union movement is to get them away from viewing unions as being about different sectors, you know, metal workers and hospital workers and auto, auto workers and that we should use the trades, uh, the, the councils, uh, the city councils, <coughs> trades union councils, as, as organizing principles, so we organize geographically. And I suddenly said, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's interesting, because I, I recall uh, when I was in England around the time of the miners' strike, and I was in Oxford at the time, and the trades council in Oxford was an incredibly vigorous uh, organization of support and the trades council by virtue of the fact that it was not concerned with you know the auto workers versus the you know uh, versus the municipal workers was about the, the the proletariat of the city the trades councils were actually had a different conception and of, of the proletariat but also the trades councils were, were often the centers of of, of, of radicalism which was often not as present in the conventional union move, side of the movement. So organizing geographically has had actually, I think, a long history of success. And when I started to think about, well, how have, how have cities, when have cities become centers of political discontent? That's a very interesting question. Obviously, right now, and you look at Cairo, and you, you look at, you know, even Madison, Wisconsin, and you look at all of this, and you suddenly say, well, and of course, then there was the Paris Commune, 
And then you suddenly start to look at a whole history of urban uprisings, uh, Cordoba 1969, there was a Seattle general strike of uh, 1919. And what you see emerging is a picture of the urban as being actually a viable arena within which there can be serious class struggle waged. But the thing about it is there's a great deal of heterogeneity. And this is both a difficulty and an advantage. You lose the homogeneity that's often required for cohesive action, but you gain in the breadth of heterogeneity. But you're also forced in a city to ask, what is it we all have in common? We know what divides us. The domestic workers are over here doing this. The taxi drivers are over there doing that. But what is it that we have in common? We know we're very, very different. And we have different conditions of employment and, and, and that, and the restaurant workers and so on. What happens if we all get together and ask ourselves the question, what, is, what are our commonalities? And the commonalities have a lot to do with the simple fact that these are the workers who produce and reproduce urban life. And if we stop thinking about the production of single commodities like cars and widgets and whatever, and we started to think about all of those who produce and reproduce urban life as being the proletariat, not simply of our times, but backwardly looking actually has always been a vigorous element in any revolutionary movement. It was central to the French Revolution. It was central in 1848. It was central in the Paris Commune. It was uh, uh, the, the Petrograd Soviet. Uh, you, just, you just go on and on and on. The Shanghai Commune, you know, it just goes on and on. And currently, you know, Tahrir Square, Cairo, and all the rest of it. And, and, and so, so you, you see that actually that can become an organizing principle and that the city itself by virtue of its heterogeneity and by virtue of the interconnectedness that necessarily exists in a city can also be a center of political militancy. And people often don't look at that. Very interesting book just come out about the American Revolution and the role of the port cities in fomenting the revolutionary spirit in the coffee shops and the, you know, the taverns and all the rest of it. And it's no accident that you know, one of the iconic events in the American Revolution was the Boston Tea Party. It was focused on Boston. But here what you see is, very, is something, again, very similar to, to, to the history. Here you see something very interesting about what happened in the American Revolution. That the revolutionary spirit was nurtured in the port cities. But as it became more practical and started to create a revolutionary movement, the cities were very vulnerable. The British Navy could simply haul up and kind of threaten the city and say, all right, we're going to we're either smash the city to bits and burn it down, or you capitulate. So actually, the American Revolution went rural at that point. It left the cities. It had to, because the cities were vulnerable. We see that in Homs right now in, in, in Syria, a very good example, where it seems that there was a lot of radicalism being nurtured in the city and so on, but it's very vulnerable. So the question is then, what's the, you know, how, do you, how, how do you take that revolutionary spirit that comes from there and where does it go in terms of revolutionary movement? And of course we know what happened with the Paris Commune, that the Paris Commune is surrounded and, 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 and quelled and, 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 and so on. But in the American Revolution, 
it actually managed to survive, particularly becoming, uh, uh, but out of that came a certain anti, anti-urban ideology in the American Revolution, and the Jeffersonian vision and all of that kind of thing, which is anti-urban. So I think that history, however, is worth, is worth recuperating. And, but it's worth also thinking about how we go about, and in effect, what you began to see, at least in the little bit I saw of the Occupy movement, I went on sabbatical, and then 10 days they, later they occupied Wall Street. And I think, Jesus, why did they have to do that? You know, why, couldn't they, why, couldn't they, you know, why did they have to wait until I left to do it? And then, why couldn't they have done it last year? You know? so, so, so in, in a sense, it's also using the city as a site of struggle and trying to use the city as a strategic way uh, to try to foment a much more revolutionary kind of spirit, a much more revolutionary movement. And a revolutionary movement, that is indeed going to reach out at some point or rather to the 99%. They haven't done a terribly good job of that right now as far as I can see. And you see some of the vulnerabilities. I mean, we had a May Day march which was no, not reported anywhere as far as I can tell, but there were about 15, nearly 20,000 people on Broadway. It was a very significant event. Uh, but there were at least 5,000 police around. Uh, which is some sign, by the way, of the way of the degree to which Wall Street is actually fearful of this movement gaining any traction. The Wall Streeters know what they've done. They know they're very viable, very, very vulnerable. If uh, the movement takes off and starts to put real serious pressure on a democratic president, he will have to start to pursue the malfeasance on Wall Street. He really would have to start to do that. That's one of the reasons why Wall Street is backing Romney so completely and so fiercely. And one of the reasons why the police presence to crush the Occupy movement in the bud before it goes anywhere has been so, the, the, the repression has been absolutely fierce, really fierce. So when you fight class struggle in the city, you know that these tensions are likely to come out. And you know that the definitions that you use on who is the proletariat and who is not have to shift. And again, I go back to some of the theory. Who produces value? Well, the factory worker does, the mine worker does, the agricultural laborer does, but so does the transport worker. Actually, all those delivery trucks going around New York City are creating value and they're creating surplus value. Organize the delivery workers. Transport strikes are extremely, extremely effective. We've seen that again and again. Organize the food chain into the city, which is in effect how El Alto disciplined La Paz since Four, three of the major routes into La Paz went through El Alto. They cut the food chain. And the bourgeoisie had to live off canned beans for, for a while. These are the sorts of things that I think can really, can really work. There is tremendous potential political power. I think when the immigrant workers move, movement in 2006 declared May Day to be one of their days of big demonstrations, in, in favor of immigrant workers' rights. Effectively, Los Angeles was shut down, Chicago was shut down, 
simply because of the tremendous power that exists on the streets and in the streets. We have a situation right now where the left has no money political power at all. And 99%, I mean, has almost no money power. The only power you have are people on the streets. That's the only power that exists. And it's the only power that can be used. And thinking of creative ways to use it, to bring to attention the vast inequalities and the total unfairness of the system. This is, in fact, the sort of thing that has to be done and is being done actually all over the world. This is what was done in Argentina in 2001, 2002 and continues to be done by the Picateros in Argentina. This is what Chilean students have been absolutely magnificent at, which is occupying spaces and using those spaces as homes, if you like, to maraud into the city and make their point. And, and, and in the Chilean case, the, the recent polls show that about more than 70% of the population in Chile agrees with the students. The president there has an approval rating around 20%. And it has a lot to do with the, the militancy of the students and their determination to maintain their, their cause. And the last thing I saw showed that extra taxes were being imposed now by Chilean Congress on corporations in order to try to pay for uh, a greater public subsidy to what should be free education, but in Chile is not. So these things are happening around the world. And it's not only in individual cities. That is the other thing I think that is impressive about this that there are networks of cities which become involved. Actually, 1848 wasn't just Paris, Frankfurt, Milan, Vienna. 1968 wasn't just Paris, it was spread throughout the urban network. I think one of the most fabulous things we've seen of this sort in recent times was the February 15, 2003 march against the war, when there were about three million people on the streets of of Rome, two million in Madrid, two million in Barcelona, a million and a half in London. How many, how many actually were going to be in New York we never knew because the mayor said we couldn't march. You can only stand on First Avenue and First Avenue got blocked and then it was illegal to stand on Second Avenue but Second Avenue got blocked and it was illegal to stand on Third Avenue but Third Avenue got blocked. And nobody knew, nobody knew how many people tried to get there and couldn't get there. So this was a moment of simultaneity throughout the urban network. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, it's always interesting to look at how capitalism mobilized its power. Merchant capitalism mobilized its power through things like the Hanseatic League. You know? Imagine a League of Socialist Cities. I have a little fantasy, you know. <laughs> a League of Socialist Cities, which is really pushing. And there are links, you know. I mean, we have a group now that's saying, well, all right, participatory budgeting, not the most radical thing in the world, but we now have a group that's doing participatory budgeting in New York City. And okay, it's in Porto Alegre and it's elsewhere, so there's, there's communication going on around things of this kind. So these, these are, if you like, one of the ways in which we can start to rethink the role of the urban in class struggle. 
It's not going to be easy, but actually this comes back to the heterogeneity is important. Because most of the other movements we've had at various points have broken down because they have not embraced others in the way that a city has to embrace others if it's going to have a collective movement. And the question has to be asked, what is it that we all have in common in this city? What is it that is going to allow us to have a voice in how this city is constructed? What is it that's going to allow us to determine that you cannot keep on building all of these condominiums for the rich and palaces of enjoyment for everybody that are pretty useless? You have to start to use resources to deal with the fact that so many people are trying to live, as in New York City, on $10,000 a year. You have to try to change the dynamics and, and, and use the city and create an alternative kind of city. Even create a more political city. A city that is actually open to a kind of political negotiation across heterogeneities which is impossible in, in the traditional bland suburb. In other words, by making the world we make ourselves, but we also make our politics by making our world differently. So there also has to be an, uh, an alternative urbanization project. It's not sufficient to kind of say, well, okay, we just organize what is. No, we have to change the cities so they become much more amenable to politi political action. That they become centers of political consciousness instead of the disruption of politics, which seems to me what a lot of recent forms of urbanization have been about. In other words, there's an interesting kind of question which actually parallels very much, I think, what Murray Bookchin was asked, the question that Murray Bookchin was asking, which is, how do you create real political cities on the ruins of capitalist urbanization? Because capitalist urbanization has been pretty ruinous for collective politics. Capitalist urbanization has been ruinous for the environment. It's been ruinous, actually, for collective forms of action and, and the development of commonalities and the commons and all the other things that, 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 that people might value. So this is, if you like, one of the, the central things that I think we should be, questions we should be asking. And I want to stress, I don't have all of the answers, but it's the question that has to be asked. And when you ask the question that way, you get out of some of the ideas that, well, there's a traditional kind of left politics which is attached to some sort of notion of the avant-garde or the proletariat that's going to change history. Well, we've got to get away from that to a different definition of who the proletariat is and what it is they're about and where they're going and where they might want to go. So by changing and, and being flexible about those sorts of definitions, I think we can also be more flexible about starting to think through what an alternative form of urbanization might look like, which would be more facilitative of, of political communication, will be more facilitative of political activism, will be more facilitative of the creation of a, of a world which is much more humane and much juster, and at some point or other is also going to have to address the anti-capitalist dilemma. How do we move away from a capitalist society that is past its due date? How do we actually then start to create alternative forms of living alternative forms of provisioning and that is going to have to emerge it seems to me and, or cannot emerge without also considering alternative modes of urbanization 
and alternative modes of urban living. Okay, let me leave it there and then we can talk with some questions and see how it goes. Thank you. So let's go to some, uh, some questions and who wants to? Okay, one up there. Yeah. Um, I think it's just on a, one of the last points you're making. Uh, I was just wondering whether a political project of an alternative uh, urbanization um, perhaps ignores the fact, a, a simple antagonism, that uh, the capitalists have capital and we do not. Well, of course they have capital, but one of the one of the one of the things that we have to be sure of is to take it away from them. <laughs> That's what a revolutionary movement is all about. Now, you can do it incrementally, or you can do it one big bang. I think that you're going to have to do it incrementally. I think the possibility of doing it one big bang is not not on the cards right now, partly because of the instruments of oppression and instruments of policing and militarization that they have at their command. But I think that. Uh, uh, reducing the the, the 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 command. I mean, the capitalist class right now. I mean, those people who are earning 3.7 million dollars a year basically control the political agenda in the United States. And what we're likely to see in the coming election is the use of money power of a sort you've never seen before. And it's all going to be behind Romney for the reasons that I've mentioned. And the only answer is going to have to be. Um, you know, street power of some kind, but uh, on the other hand, you know, Obama is not, uh, you know, going to be very radical either, unless there is a very strong movement that's going to push him. And and that, that uh, well, uh, it's our fault. If if there is a very strong movement, he can be pushed. I'm sure. You don't think so? I think he can be pushed, but he's have to be pushed. <laughs> I mean, you see, everybody will say this. I mean, uh, uh, Robert Reich was on. The, the other day and he, he was in the administration and he said the welfare reform went through and he thought there would be big demonstrations against it but it became clear to him the fact there were not big demonstrations against it meant that, meant that it just went through without anybody saying anything. Uh, if there had been huge demonstrations against it uh, a big chunk of the Democratic Party might have shrunk back but without, without the outside pressure they're not going to do anything. I mean I agree with you they may not do anything either even with big pressure but, but with big pressure uh, the, the, is it, big pressure is a necessary but not sufficient condition for them to do something about it. Yeah. John Holloway talks about uh, opting out of capitalism in certain ways of, uh, I mean, a, a load of students meeting together in a university and reading Marx, somebody opening up, uh, starting off an allotment, um, you know, all little things like that, you know, not working that overtime. Do you understand? For, for me, it's, it's like a, you know, to break the capitalist system is more like it can also be an individual thing through like your own, how do I opt out of capitalism? How do I stop buying into it? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, and he talks about, you know, the Sabatistas and things like the way they took control of the uh, Chapatas and places like that, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that's where it starts. It doesn't start with, because I'm, I'm like you, this proletariat, the big factory worker set up is gone. <coughs> It's, it's changed, it's moved on, we're a service industry. But the questions we got asked ourselves, how do we opt out of it individually? 
know. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I think it, that's that's a, a, a valid question, but you know, you know, John Holloway flies airplanes around the world and does other things which are actually inside of. So it's very hard to. To, to opt out. But what you're pointing to is what I call a termite theory of political change. Um, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, because termites can do very damaging things. But it's a, a kind of gnawing away here, there, and everywhere at some of the pillars, and, and, and eventually they, go, they crumble, you know. And I think it's not, uh, it's, it, it's, it's an okay theory of, uh, of, of revolutionary transformation. Uh, the only problem, as we know, is that uh, when termite damage gets a little too obvious, then uh, um, the uh, capitalist class is likely to call in the exterminators and uh, do considerable damage uh, to uh, those who engage in that practice. I think in some ways the difficulty and the danger of what you're talking about is that what, what capital has done is to render large segments of the population disposable, large segments of the population irrelevant, and to the degree that that segment of the population decides to opt out and go and look after itself, capital is very grateful for you to doing that, saying, yeah, okay, good, go off and you know, cultivate your little dot of land and that's fine. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind. The big, the big problems arise, however, um, when you seek and try to ask yourself the question of how can the international division of labor be so orchestrated uh, so that all of us have enough to eat and we have reasonable you know, material, uh, our material needs are, 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 are met. And that, that takes, and, and right now that's organized, of course, partially through command and control structures of corporate capital and partly through market uh, engagements. And when you start to think about replacements of that, you have to think about forms of coordination which go very far beyond uh, the sort of thing uh, you're, you're, you're talking about. And, those, and it requires a form of, of, of political organization uh, that is uh, not horizontal, it can often be rather hierarchical and a lot of people on the left are, uh, are um, rather hostile to that uh, I idea. Um, but as I try to say, well, you know, next time if you fly the Atlantic and you're halfway across the Atlantic and somebody says, well, flight traffic controllers in New York have gone into assembly mode right now and they're going to discuss which airline should get priority landing or something like that. And you could just imagine what you would think. Um, there, are many, there, are, there are many aspects of contemporary life which are now organized in what you might call tightly coupled systems where you need command and control structures. I wouldn't want my friends, my, you know, my, my anarchist friends to be in charge of a nuclear power station <laughs> when, when, the, when, when the lights started blinking red and yellow and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and I think there are, you have to be very careful about proposing one form of organization to address all questions. I think the, uh, the what you're talking about is, is is one aspect of a of a political strategy, but it's only one aspect of a political strategy, as is the termite th 
theory of it. It's one aspect of a political strategy, but at some point or other it also has to be supplemented by other aspects. And one of the problems, I think, on the left, if I can pontificate on this for a moment, is it's, it suffers from what I call a certain fetishism of organizational forms, uh, that it has a certain, there are certain kind of rules of organization which shall not be, you know, uh, evaded uh, or, or transgressed. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think uh, there are many aspects of what you're talking about going on. There are solidarity economies emerging in much of Latin America, which are doing a very good job of, of, of connecting, and, and, and there, there are bartering structures emerging, sometimes out of necessity, as occurred in the wake of the, um, uh, of the, the big disruption in Argentina, 2001-2002. There are barter structures emerging in Greece right now. So all, all of these things exist. Um, I, I'm in favor of uh, actually trying to invent new forms of money. Uh, in Argentina, they invented uh, during the thing a bartering structure which used oxidized money, i.e. money that dissolved after a certain period of time, which means that you had to use it to spend, because if you didn't use it to spend, eventually it dissolved. In other words, it was an anti-accumulation form of money. <laughs> so imagine what all those billionaires would do if they were actually given oxidized money. And I, I said this to a colleague, and he said, my God, they get very fat, very fast. <laughs> uh, so, so there are, there are things, and, I, and actually, uh, but this, is, this, is, this was there, by the way, in Keynes. Keynes talked seriously about having stamped money, uh, which said that the, in order to maintain the value of your money at the end of the month, you had to go into a post office and get a stamp on it, but you had to pay for the stamp. So it's a kind of, it's, it's an anti-accumulation. <laughs> Extraction. So, so if you had a lot of money you had to, and you wanted to preserve it, you had to pay a lot of money to preserve it. So, the more money you had, the more. So, this this said. So, Keynes was very interested in this because then people would have to spend money, and of course, he was very interested in effective demand. And this was one of the ways to go: effective demand. So, you could control effective demand by, 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 by controlling what, how much you had to pay for the stamp. At certain times of year, you'd have, you know, had to pay a lot for, to, to preserve your money. Other times of year, less. So, you could. So he was very interested in that. So there are all sorts of things like that that you can start to do and start to think about. And, uh, these are, but I don't, I don't think the, the solution you're proposing is one that I would say has, has global, global possibilities. Can I draw your attention to our left? Yes. Yeah. Uh, my, my name is John, and I graduated here in 1963 in geography, something that I've lived with and found, you know, has enlightened my uh, life all that, all that time. I have three books still on my shelf at home that come from that period. One is Lewis Mumford's The City in History. Mm -hmm. The second one is a, a volume of essays edited by George Athea Dawson called Studies in Human Ecology, which includes an essay which you refer to in The Rebel, uh, the Rebel Cities uh, on, on human ecology. It also includes that essay about the mental state of sub suburbanization and so forth. And the third book I bought during Freshers' Week, coming to the LSE from a, a northern working class background as a Christian and I don't know what else, from the Arab Society bookstore during Freshers' Week called The Essential Left, Four Classic Texts on the Principles of Socialism, Marx, Engels and Lenin. And that was, you know, those three are still on my shelf. 
Now, um, what I, I'd like to ask is, uh, having, I'm afraid I only got through 40 pages on the train coming down from Yorkshire, the rebel citizen, I'm sorry about that. But um, the, you, you seem to skip from 1848 to the reconstruction projects of metropolitan New, New York in the post-Second World War period. Now, to my reasoning, one of the most fundamental transformations of the city, you did refer to it in your lecture, you know, was the, the Petersburg Soviet coming to power and ultimately to state power in, the Soviet, in, the, in Russia in 1917. Now, the one, this, by the way, was edited by Harold Lasky, who considers himself, a, he was a professor at this school. Now, the one classic Marxist, if you want, that's missing from this was Trotsky, and he does fill much of my shelves now. He talked about combined and uneven development, and he talked about the international unity of the working class or the proletariat. Now, can you foresee city-states? City because that would seem to be the logic, you know, in the Greek model or something like that, you know, which Mumford just traced those, that yeah, development yeah. of cities in different societies. So that's my question, really. Why jump from 1848 to New York in 1947? Thank you. Because for once in my life, I wanted to write a short book. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I, that history is very interesting. I mean, that history is very interesting, and I obviously have been influenced throughout my life by uh, the anarchist tradition as it's flowed into urban planning, for example, via Patrick Geddes and Lewis Mumford, and, and to some degree I'm still very intrigued by Murray Bookchin's views uh, on, on uh, you know, libertarian municipalism and confederations of municipalities and so on. City-states, yeah, I actually think uh, Mumford's uh, ideas about bioregions and metropolitan bioregions are actually rather interesting. Again, this is thinking about alternative forms of organization and I think that, uh, th that's a very fecund uh, uh, way to start to think about uh, what alternatives might look like uh, right, right now. So I'm I'm, I'm very open to that. Um, um, I'm aware of many of these things that have occurred in between. Not all of them, of course, but but at least uh, some of some of them. Um, and I, I did talk about uh, the 1920s in the United States, which I think was also a very interesting period when uh, actually the role of uh, uh, of urbanization in, in, and is now only now beginning to be understood the role of urbanization in the creation of the, the, the 1929 crash uh, so I, I do pick that up in, in, in here because I think it's significant uh, to, to give a much greater historical, historical depth to it but I just really wanted to talk about contemporary situations I spent most of the time in the final part of the book as you will see talking about uh, the, the, the organization of El Alto in Bolivia and to some degree Cochabamba in Bolivia which have been classic examples of a, a, a form of class struggle that is waged uh, on an urbanizing basis and on an urban basis which has remarkable effects I mean in effect it paved the way for Morales to come to power 
uh, and got rid of two neoliberal presidents uh, within two years of each other. So, so I, I think that these, these, these examples bear considerable scrutiny. And, and uh, the, then the question of what kind of urban forms might, might emerge out of them which have a much, more, much stronger political presence is, 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 is uh, kind of an open question for me. But anyway, there's somebody there? Yes? Maybe we take two questions there, since, yeah. you're, since uh, you're sitting next to each other, you can... Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, uh, my name's Peter Cooper. I, I, I'm a former chairperson of uh, Lambeth Trades Council, so I know a bit about them. But uh, I also know a bit about Oxford Trades Council, and of course the point about that organisation, it was led very much by people who actually had came out of the car factories and had had a long, peer, yeah. a long experience of, uh, of, of struggle, if you like. Uh, it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, and uh, today, you know, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of workers on strike in, in the UK on the pensions. Okay, it's fairly weak uh, struggle and what have you. But, you know, the working class is alive and well and living in the Western world, although, yes, the industrial component of it is smaller than it used to be. And it's, you know, obviously the public sector, well, the public sector was very big, it's getting smaller. Uh, and uh, second, uh, the other point is I've just spent a couple of years in France where there was also a pension struggle going on uh, a, a year or two back and which, in my view, uh, you know, Sarkozy wouldn't have actually lost had it not been for that pension struggle. That was the decisive moment when his opinion poll ratings collapsed. But it was absolutely enormous compared with the pension struggle we have in the UK. Uh, that I went on demonstration local town. Sorry, I, 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 I'll, I'll be I'll be brief. Uh, Twenty-five thousand, of which there were five thousand people demonstrating on the streets. So I don't think the issue is primarily one of location. To be quite honest, right? Because I don't think the sort of uh, it's fundamentally different. France is not fundamentally different from the UK uh, in that sense. It's primarily a question of politics and particularly of the willingness of the unions in France to take direct action, which unfortunately we are still stuck in the, the Engels model of workers fighting the employers directly in this country and not engaging in political struggle. And that's how you can bring the uh, bring uh, workers from different sectors together mm -hmm. to make their power felt. We have to m move much more towards the French model of trade unionism, it seems to me, if we are going to make our uh, uh, for all their weaknesses and difficulties, if we are going to make our power felt uh, against whichever government, whichever neoliberal government we're faced with. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm wondering if you would agree that one of the major problems with this, with various urbanization projects, like the one you are trying to, to offer, is its idealization, or rather romanticism, um, in the sense that uh, the idea of the city being open to everyone, um, being uh, open for political struggle and representation and so forth, um, hasn't, hasn't been um, ever applied, as, as you say actually in your, in your book. So don't you think that such projects, even if we manage to to uh, apply, would always be temporary, um, and, and that we have to get away from such um, romanticism. Uh, 
uh, project. Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm not against romanticism. What's wrong with that? <laughs> uh, it takes a little romanticism to do anything, you know, <laughs> I mean. Um, so, yeah, but I, I, I mean, I get what you're saying, and I think that uh, you, you don't... Well, there's, there's two things here. One is, you know, the imaginary of the city has a long, long history. And I think, uh, it, you know, you're faced with this. I mean, people usually ask the question, well, why are you talking about the right to the city? What about the right to the countryside, etc., etc., etc.? And I, I say, well, you know, actually, Lefebvre, I think, recognized way back that the distinction between city and country was disappearing, and, and, but the city has always been uh, part of our imaginary. I mean, it has a religious meaning, it has all kinds of other kind of meanings attached to it. And I, and I don't think that it makes sense to me to give up on the collective memory that exists about what a city should be or could be or might be, you know. So I think you can mobilize those sentiments at the same time as you make clear that you talk when I talk about mobilizing the food chain, you're talking about bringing together all of the, you know, all of the elements from the countryside right the way into the city. Uh, so, so it's not it's not exclusionary of uh, of of or any of that sort. Um, is am I talking about an ideal society where everybody in the city is very sort of happily getting along? The answer is no, because I think that kind of city would be boring, frankly. And actually, the point, the point about city is the, the heterogeneity and the conflict, about through the conflict, to try out of that conflict to, to generate um, significant change. Now, when you look, and this is what is interesting to me about El Alto, the reason why, for example, the, the kind of unions and neighborhood association meetings were always, always well attended, because if you didn't attend, you were likely to get shafted, you know. And, 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 you know, I mean, for instance, the Street Traders Association, there'll be fights over, you know, who uses this piece of the... So there was a lot of antagonism there. And because of the antagonism, they came. If they all came and all said happy to each other, always oh, everything's fine, you know, and went away, nobody would bother to come. But they bothered to come because they had, they had reason to come. Because if they didn't come, then they'd suddenly find their spot had disappeared on the street and somebody else had taken it, you know, I mean... So, so the antagonism is actually terribly important to the dynamic. Uh, but out of that, when, when, when the government started to get, you know, do neoliberal repression, all of the people knew each other, even if they were in an antagonistic relationship, and they dropped their antagonism and said, we're not, we're not taking this shit, you know, we're just going to stop it. And, and were able to act as a collective precisely because... <laughs> They knew each other very well because they'd been fighting over, you know, who controls this piece of, you know, you see what I mean? So, so actually antagonism is sometimes, I think, I think the reason why, for instance, only about 30% of the, you know, UK population turned out to vote in, in local elections last week it has a lot to do with the fact there's not enough antagonism involved. There's not enough at stake. You know, and so you've got to introduce a lot more antagonism into sort of. And who's interested in dopey council meetings? You know, I mean, it, 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 so you've got to you've got to inject something that really really gets people kind of kind of kind kind of mobilised. And we saw that, by the way. And I tried to say to this to the sort of Socialist Workers Party. 
One of their most successful actions in, in last time, even though they've got an ideology which is rather workerist, one of their most successful actions in recent years was, of course, their opposition to the poll tax, which is an urban issue. And, and their mobilization against, against the poll tax, I think, had a lot to do with Margaret Thatcher being eventually de demoted. I mean, I think it really was. It really was. And I kind of say to them, you, you, you've been very successful on an urban issue, so why don't you take it sort of theoretically that way and, and push it even further? So, so, um, so I'm kind of. I'm not a member of the Socialist Workers' Party, by the way, in case you're thinking. But, but you know, the point, the point is, that, and I disagree with them about a lot of things, but the, the point I'm trying to make here is, is that. But the, the, the thing about France, I mean, yeah, well, the French have different, very different modes and traditions of struggle. My impression of the... Uh, I, I was actually there very briefly while these strikes were going on. My impression was the leadership was not... was rather, was rather scared of what the membership wanted to do. And there was a big disjuncture between the formal leadership and and the membership and the membership were out there mobilizing in the ways you're talking about and and of course when that starts to happen then then there's a kind of a, a question the timidity of the leadership I think was 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 the problem but that often comes out of of the nature of trade union leadership structures that that frequently the, the leadership is very is, is way behind where the membership wants to be uh, and very rarely leads. A lot of the time, they're about constraining uh, the political process rather than letting it letting it fly. Let's go up here somewhere. Yeah, left yeah. and right. <laughs> yeah. Murder that joke. Yeah. David's pointing one direction. I've got yeah. the mic over here. All right. Cool. Um, so you, you talk a lot about sort of redefining uh, or updating notions of the, the proletariat, um, uh, but, but the way that you talk about it still very much defines the, the proletariat in terms of people who produce value and workers. Um, and um, particularly you know, in urban environments, a, a non-trivial percentage of, of, of the population is, is unemployed and sort of this disposable, irrelevant um, sections of the population. I don't know if you've been following what's been happening in, in London in terms of you know people just being forced out of the city completely, not even yeah. into sort yeah, of yeah. suburban areas, but yeah. just completely the other side of the country. Yeah. I mean, is is there a way within this this redefined notion of the proletariat and within the sort of you know like uh, p political cities uh, to to enable people who don't have access to employment to sort of opt into class struggle in some way? Is, is do you think that's possible, or do you think that's that's always going to be uh, it's always going to be, we're never going to be able to give those people who lack that power uh, any sort of uh, power over their own uh, lived environment. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't mention this in my talk, but uh, to me, one of the things that's, I, I tend to say, look, there are two ways in which uh, uh, the bourgeoisie can extract uh, value from the urban situation. One is by employing wage labor in the classic manner. The other is by what I call accumulation by dispossession. Uh, and there is a tremendous amount of accumulation by dispossession occurring uh, in urban areas, people being forced out of their living quarters, people being denied rights, people, you know, so uh, I think from the 1970s onwards, I mean, accumulation by dispossession or, you know, has always been a significant uh, part of what capital has been about, but I think that it's become much more significant. Uh, over the last, uh, you know, 20, 30 years. And if you look at the number of people who've lost their houses, 
and the foreclosures. This is a this is a huge, huge uh, grab of a value, just taking away a value which which belonged to people, and it, it, it's the, the direct value of the house, but it's also the the, the indirect value of the of the living environment and, and all the rest of it. Um, and there's a very interesting relationship here between where, where value is produced and where it's realized. And again, uh, what you find in volume two of Capital is you start to recognize that value may be produced in the, in, in the workplace, uh, in the factory, say, but it may be realized by the retailer or by the landlord. You can even make wage concessions to the worker in the workplace and then grab it back via the retailer and via the financier and the debt, you know, and the credit card and all that kind of stuff. So, so there are multiple points of extraction of wealth in which almost everybody is involved. Anybody who has a credit card and suddenly sees extra, you know, charges put on their credit card for no good reason. Everybody who has a cell phone and suddenly finds mysterious charges on the bottom of their, their cell phone bill. This is a process of extraction of value, which is taking place at a different point in the circulation process than at the point of production. Uh, so this is, I think, a very important component of what's going on of where wealth is being extracted out of urban life. And so there's a tremendous amount of wealth extraction by landlords, by service providers like uh, you know, telephone companies and all the rest of it, and by, uh, by, by financial institutions. So, so yes, uh, the answer is to the degree that everybody is caught up in that aspect of it, as well as the employment aspect, they are actually very much uh, at the center of what I think uh, class struggle in the city is going to be all about, which is uh, uh, an attempt to roll back uh, the accumulation by dispossession, prevent uh, the use of eminent domain for private purposes, all those kinds of things going on. The expulsions that are going on, uh, I don't know, I haven't, I'm sure some people here have been looking at what, what uh, the, uh, the Olympics is usually a, a classic site where there's going to be a lot of expulsions going on and a lot of taking away, all in the name of some sort of grand kind of project. So I'm sure that's going on. I haven't, you know, I haven't looked into it, but, but I'm sure somebody here has, 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 has done that. So, so, Yes, the, the answer is there are, this is why I think the politics of it has to focus not only on the labor process and a broader notion of the labor process. For example, Marx insists that maintenance and repair of fixed capital is part of the value-producing scheme. So I point out to everybody that all those people who erect scaffolding and take it down in New York City are producing value. All of the truck drivers who are taking stuff around New York City are producing value. That's not generally speaking how Marxists think about it, but I'm saying they are producing as much value as the people in the factories are. And all of the transport workers are producing value. So first off, the definition of who's producing value has to be expanded, but secondly also this whole kind of dynamics of, uh, of, of, of accumulation by dispossession. And then there is the kind of the whole issue of domestic work. Uh, and and uh, what? How do we? How do we? Uh, how how do we bring in uh, domestic workers? Uh, for example, there's a fairly sophisticated domestic workers organization in New York City that managed to get a charter passed by the New York State Assembly on uh, 
the rights of domestic workers uh, to limit the rate of their exploitation in, in you know, in, in family situations. So, again, there are many forms of organisation. They've now come together with other groups like the taxi drivers and the, and the restaurant workers to form something called the Excluded Workers Congress. Uh, so there's an attempt to build an alliance and ask the question, what do we have in common, even though we have very different kind of specific considerations. There was a question up here. There's a question up there, and, and then next, if we can come down yeah. here. Yeah. Jeff Powell, I'm with the Research on Money and Finance group based at, at SOAS. It's notable that you describe a New York City that is, if I can uh, simplify, politically blue in the center and red in the exurbs. And for those of us who just voted in the London mayoral elections last week, we know that London still, to some extent, is the opposite. It's red in the center and blue in the suburbs. And, and I would fear that perhaps New York City offers London a vision of itself uh, 10 or 20 years hence. And perhaps in recognition of that fact, one of the more interesting parts of Ken Livingston's platform was to talk about a public estate agency, um, a public agency that would act as a benchmark in the London property market. So I wonder, can we talk about people-centered urbanization without talking about greater public ownership of firstly housing intermediation and secondly housing finance and what does that pose in terms of a challenge for a city-based uh, strategy of struggle? Well I think the decommodification of the housing market is a necessary condition as things go on uh, and how that is done and by what means whether we look for the termite means where, you know, uh, in the United States, there are all the, actually it turns out there are all sorts of ways in which, uh, le which are legally available. There's limited equity co-ops, there's land trusts, there are all sorts of ways in which you can actually support the, the, the decommodification of, of, of housing. It's just that, that by and large, first off, they're rarely, they're rarely touted as being significant and important. Uh, relative to the dream of home ownership, which is constantly being promoted in the, in the literature, so there's no uh, there's no interest in the real estate people and the real estate agents and all that whole kind of apparatus for for those forms of, but they also need significant public support uh, to set up a limited equity co-op. Uh, you need you need uh, some support from probably in, in getting mortgage finance, and you had, it has to come from from the city council or something of that kind. If the city council doesn't have the resources to do it, then, then, then that becomes a real, real problem. So we need a public program of the sort that's being mentioned here to try to, to, try to promote those, those alternative forms of, of, uh, of housing finance. But I think that in the end of the day, um, who benefits from high property prices? What, what, you know, I mean, when I say that actually you can raise wages in New York City, but if the rents go up by an equal amount, then nobody's better off. And what is clear is the rents are going up at a faster rate than wage rates, and so we're getting an actually an economics of dispossession through, through the way the housing market is uh, being driven up. And the housing market, even, even now in New York City, is still going crazy. I mean, people are buying properties for $31 million. Shakes come in. It's a great moment to buy for them. You know, you can come in and it's... And instead of paying $35 million for an apartment, they pay $31 million for an apartment. You know, it's great savings for them. 
Um, so, so I, and I, 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 I don't know about the situation in London. I imagine that's probably going on in London, London, London too. So, again, the whole kind of approach to these these sorts of questions. I mean, the, the decommodification of the housing market, and 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 of course, what you're seeing here also is is the is the commodification of higher education and the commodification of the education. You know, the thing that struck me about that it was so fantastic being with the students in Chile uh, back in back in last uh, October when I was there. They clearly understood that Pinochet was gone, but what Pinochet had implanted had got worse. And the, the Concertación, which was supposedly democracy, had not dented Pinochetism. What we're fighting in, 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 in Britain, it seems to me, is, is Thatcherism doubled down on. What we're fighting in the United States is Reaganism Turned it. I mean, he looks like a kind of progressive, bumbling idiot compared to to to, to, to what's what's going on right now. Um, and 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 actually, this is this is the this is the thing. I mean, I mean, this is the same. You see the same thing sort of in a way in Cairo. It, it, it was it, in a way it was easy to get rid of Mubarak. The real struggle starts now. It's the whole system that lies behind it. And I think what. what, what one of the things that I'd be concerned to is to try to get people to think systemically about. What it is, it's not just the pensions here, and it's the whole damn system that is, that is, that is, which is called Thatcherism, if you like, which of course Blair was part of and Clinton was, 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 was part of. The whole damn system which, which needs to be confronted. And, and that is something that the Chilean students have done, and I think in a remarkable kind of way. And, and I think uh, why I, I find that movement so inspiring is precisely because they understand very clearly that that is what the central issue is. And they're not going to rest uh, on, on sort of being bored off with this little bit and that little bit because they've been through that experience. Actually, the, the people who are fighting the, at the university level now staged the high school strike of 2006 as a cohort that, that staged the high school strike got betrayed by Bachelet and the, and the Congress and knows perfectly well what it means to be betrayed and they're not going to be betrayed this time. And, and they, that's why they're in it for the long haul and they know what it is they're really, really battling. So it's, and I think that consciousness is something which is, which is, which is if you like, la still lacking in, uh, in, in many countries that, uh, that, that, that I've been in, including, uh, of course, the United States, where nobody quite sees it that way. But it, and, until, and until it's seen that way, I think we won't have a mass movement which is really going to go places uh, and, and do something that's, uh, that's radically different. Can we get the microphone down here? Then there's a person at the back to the right of the camera and a person down the front here. And then I'm not sure how the time police are, are doing. Are we okay? Okay. Short questions, shortish <laughs> answers. Let's, 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 take, let's take three questions like together an and, like then, an and then, I'll, then I'll try and deal with all of them, yeah. Uh, Linda calls you. I think this follows on very much from what you just said about the, the, study, the system, because I'm... I'm I'm listening to you talking about urban revolution and also that you're a very good friend of LSE and at the same time I'm looking at the orange banner on the right here that says LSE cities supported by Deutsches Bank and, <laughs> I, and I'm also very well aware... <laughs> um, 
And I'm also very well, well aware, because I have looked into it, of the close connection between LSE and the City of London Corporation Transnational Financial Services and the way that LSE produces academic research, and that is in inverted commas, for the City of London. Um, so. So I guess my question is, uh, are you okay with that? <laughs> Easy answer, no. <laughs> okay. Hello. Follow, Hello. follow that at the back, if you would, please. Is it on? Um, my, uh, my first question is, how do you frame what happened in August uh, via your argument? And number two, um, when you talk about... Uh, well, what, what particularly in August? Well, I don't, say, I don't want to say riots, and I don't want to say uprising, and I don't want to oh, say... Yeah. So okay. that is number yeah. one. Yeah. And the second is when you talk about um, examples for building upon uh, capitalist ruins of urbanization. I don't know if you've heard that... Apparently in Detroit and Pittsburgh, which are these totally ruined mm. American yeah. cities, there yeah. are supposed to be incredible collective projects. But I, I just want to check and see what you thought. Yeah. There's uh, one more. Uh, yeah. Just one last more. question down at the front here, then, please. One, one, one. It's a complex uh, question, and that is. Uh, Coming from the specific point when you said, could they wait at the Wall Street uh, occupation uh, uh, either for another uh, three months or having done it a couple of uh, weeks earlier because you just had a sabbatical. Um, coming from, from that uh, specific point, um, I want to connect it to not just banner there with the Deutsche Bank, which is more complex, by the way, because what a luck they pay, I would think, they are themselves uh, in the doldrums much, much more than uh, most people here in the UK have any idea, uh, because basically they are becoming a British bank in the moment, so I don't know how you are going to handle your sovereignty uh, if you are sitting in this particular territory. So now, um, uh, back to uh, the questions of commodification and signification and uh, the teaching requirements of an uh, institution like the LSE or uh, New York uh, University. Um, back to how do you actually design a planning process? And that means not just a planning process in terms of uh, totally highly coupled systems where you sit in the airplane and are quite happy that you actually are going to land even if the trades council of the air controllers is uh, having uh, somehow different planning strategies uh, which are temporary and locally whilst of course the person who sits in the a plane is uh, a globalist and thinks about global planning of emancipation. That is what is the crucial task of any student at this moment, to think of the global dimensions of learning how to plan. 
and learning how to plan so that you are actually successful, that you are more successful than the individual local planning of, say, the City Corporation of London in terms of getting rid of the tents in St. Paul's, or the Wall Street folks uh, having uh, four demo demonstrants, one cop kind of controlling them. You just okay. mentioned that. Can we have so a question? how do we organize how do we organize a proper training uh, structure planned in a way which is globally going to help mankind to emancipate? Okay. Well, I, I came up with a, uh, a plan to do that and I wrote it down. And um, uh, I took it to all the foundations and all the young people in the foundations thought it was absolutely terrific and then just simply said, but our board will never ever fund it. Um, there's, a, there's a battle to be fought right now, it seems to me, to keep spaces open inside of universities. I, I sometimes think people think it's uh, an easy thing to do. It's not. You have to fight like hell sometimes to keep spaces open. Um, in the face of what I think is an assault upon the independence and the you know, possibilities that exist for doing alternative work inside of universities. I recall that my, before I went to City University of New York, I was at Johns Hopkins and I was, we were called in and told our department was failing, so we produced lots of documents to show what a great department we were. All our students went to distinguished institutions and the dean just looked at us and said, I'm not interested in that, and he pulled a dollar bill out of his pocket. He says, I'm only interested in one thing, and it's colored green and you're not making enough of it. Now this is the kind of world in which uh, universities are evolving. It needs to be resisted. Uh, there are inevitably some, you know, compromises. I mean, you, you know, where can you get some money to do something? I mean, I, it's very, and, and you need some. The other possibility is to try to launch alternative educational structures. And some of the students, and this is one of the good things that happened on May 1st, is uh, they set up a free university in Madison Square Park. And a lot of people brought their classes and they were around the, the park. Uh, many people came to give lectures and talks, so it was full of it. About 10,000 students went through there in the day. It was actually a rather kind of inspiring student, and the students were delighted that there was such positive reception for it. So they're now talking about, well, okay, can we create a, f a free alternative university? which is not only free in the sense it doesn't cost any money, but is also uh, freely explore, exploring uh, alternative ideas. And again, it's very difficult, increasingly difficult to do that inside of a, a university structure, a university system, where the rewards are pushed around in other directions. Um, the, uh, what did I make of last August? Uh, you, you know, there are, I think, uh, cries for help. I interpreted last August, I wasn't here and so I wasn't witness to it, but from afar it looked to me like this was a cry for help. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it as, as an organized political uh, move, move of the sort that the Occupy, Occupy London was or Occupy Wall Street was. And, and I, I felt that, uh, again, the, 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 the difficulty with uh, expressions of rage and, and helplessness and, and, uh, and sometimes, you know, just political 
uh, craziness, if you like, those expressions, uh, to the degree that they actually invite uh, police repression, are, count, uh, are count, counterproductive. Um, I think, uh, to some degree, the, that's why Occupy Wall Street was, I think, more successful than, uh, and I think Occupy London made a, po a political point more more clearly than there's something like the the outbreak of of, uh, of, of, of violence uh, that, that that occurred here. But we've seen many incidents of this kind uh, in France, of course, uh, in, in many the suburbs and you've seen the kind of way the, the political power reacts so you, you, the, the way political power is reacting also is indicative of the development of a political climate in which uh, essentially people are being viewed as disposable and if they get out of line then you you know you 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 uh, blame the victim and 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 and, and, and victimize people and we've seen that uh, happening on an increasing scale over the last 30 years. So the increasing militarization of control in the city uh, is something which is also ha has to be sort of taken, taken into account and that you're, so, so if you're thinking about doing something like that uh, as an organized thing, then, then you've got to understand that what the political responses will likely be and and uh, therefore it's probably a good idea to have a political strategy that does not immediately invite that r response but which makes it difficult for some way for for the opposition to do uh, to, to do its worst and the, the kind of thing I'm thinking of here one of the more inspiring movements in Latin America was the Madres de Plaza de Mayo who who got together and and simply assembled in that spot <coughs> Uh, they got harassed. They got, you know, pushed around. They sometimes got beaten. They, they, they just kept on coming, and they came and 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 they actually changed Argentinian history. I think by 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 the persistence of of uh, of their demonstrations and the questions they insisted upon asking, and they still have, I think, considerable influence and power. Though they've been in some difficulties recently for, for peculiar reasons. But so so there are things I think that can 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 work. But again. One of the things I would want to say to you is this, that there's a lot to be learned from the history of these struggles and how and what works and what doesn't work, what the dangers are and what, what the possibilities are. And we've not done any systematic, uh, I think, uh, study of exactly how these things work or don't work. And that's what we need to do. I mean, I have some temporary opinions, I mean, my, which I which I, I'm likely to change over the next as I as I get to know more than I uh, more about it. But the the dynamics uh, that we have to engage in as we approach these questions uh, has to be, I think, an open dynamic in which we're prepared to let a lot of these things go on the table, in which we we really we really recognise um, the fluidity of the situation. And and therefore calibrate our responses in terms of, of developing very fluid responses rather than having, you know, sort of using using the, the the oppositional model that was was the model of 20 years ago or 30 years ago or, or something of that kind. We've got to be very inventive right now, and I think that some of the nice things that have occurred over the last uh, year or two for me have been a, a considerable inventiveness. Uh, which which is evident in terms of the the way the oppositional movement is is thinking about alternative possibilities, and that's I think the one big hopeful hopeful sign. 
So I guess we have to leave it there because that's it and we're out of time. So I want to thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.